This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this rear vision, China, wet markets, and the wild animal trade. 17 new cases of a mysterious illness sweeping across China has sparked fears of a much bigger outbreak. It's the festive season in China when travellers flock to train stations and airports en masse to make it home for Lunar New Year. But this holiday presents an added challenge for authorities due to the spread of a previously unknown virus. The outbreak of COVID-19, a new flu-like virus, most likely spread from a wet market in Wuhan in central China, has led to a Chinese government ban on the sale and consumption of so-called wild meat. Dr. Zheng Zhong Su from the University of Waterloo in Ontario studies food security and food safety in China. He says that in Chinese cities, most people buy their fresh produce in wet markets. Wet markets refer to food markets in China selling fresh produce, meat and other processed food. These usually constitute a group of food vendors who are mainly resellers. Uh, they're not farmers. So it's sort of like the farmer's market in Western context. But this market, they operate seven days a week and a year round. So they are the dominant food retail outlets for fresh produce and meat in Chinese cities. A large city typically has a few hundred of them, such as Nanjing, where we did our survey. They had uh, 351 wet markets in the year 2017. Do the wet markets survey a cultural and social role as well? Yes, wet markets is a very important part. I would say it's an essential part of urban life in China. It's a place where people socialize with each other. You know, you don't have the chance to talk to people nowadays when shopping at supermarkets. But in wet markets, you can bargain and talk to vendors. And many of those vendors have regular customers. Wet markets are found widely in Asia, not just in China. Dirk Pfeiffer is a professor of veterinary medicine at City University in Hong Kong. He and his wife shop at their local wet market. It's an amazing environment where you've got small stores, a bit like a farmer's market, actually. A farmer's market is very similar. And you've got these with the vegetables nicely presented in the shop. And you've got another shop where you've got fish and you have meat. And it's that touching, you know, the butcher or the consumer. In fact, there's a, this is also something that's quite particular with this culture here. People trust the safety and the quality, they have more confidence in the safety and the quality of the meat if it's been slaughtered on the same day. And they call that fresh or warm meat. And that's probably a traditional thing, I guess, from the times when there wasn't any refrigeration or it was expensive. Um, it's quite incredible. You, you watch people and they would touch meat and assess the texture and the color and then drop it again and buy something else. For me, this is something you would absolutely not do for hygienic reasons. I wouldn't even think about it. So that shows you the difference. So it's, um, in one stall, you can buy meat from a live chicken. So in fact, you see the uh, chicken alive, you can choose it, they will kill it, and then you can take the meat with you home. In other Asian countries, you can also then take the live animal back home and slaughter it at home. The background being, by being able to look at the animal and seeing its behavior, seeing whether it behaves like it is healthy gives them more confidence in the quality of the product. 
Would you be able to tell just looking at live animals in an environment like that whether or not they had a virus? No, you wouldn't. That's the problem. And if it is a virus that doesn't cause disease in this animal, which is also a possibility, H7 and 9 was an avian influenza or is an avian influenza virus which doesn't cause a significant disease or even no disease in chickens, but it would actually make a human sick. So it's no, it's not. Once you have this sort of globalized world where everything is connected, you've got this enormous density of people. And then if you've got these wet markets with the poor hygienic conditions sitting in the midst of it, it becomes dangerous. Dr. Christos Linteras is a medical anthropologist who specialises in China and the kinds of diseases people can pick up from animals. He finds the term wet market too broad to be useful. The term wet market really came into use in the 80s after the open and reform turn in China. And it is used in the West and in, in the press in the West to cover a range of markets which sell anything from actual wild animals, meaning poached animals, animals that we would consider to be wild but are actually farmed, farmed animals that we are familiar with, and both live animals and butchered animals. It can be a combination of any of the above. It's a term which encompasses a wide variety of markets. Thus, I think it's not very helpful when we are talking about epidemiology. For example, when I was doing my fieldwork in uh, post-SARS China in Beijing, I would visit markets with the CDC, the China CDC, and inspect them. Now, these markets would come under the category of wet markets in Western journalism, although most of them didn't contain wild animals in the sense that we conceive them in the West. Now, these were highly regulated markets, so obviously we went there to inspect them regularly. And at the same time, there are markets which are more on the, if you want, clandestine or illegal side, or markets which contain illegal practices within them. So there would be, say, a vast market like the Wuhan one, the Huanan Seafood and Wholesale Market, which is a completely legal market, regulated market, inspected by sanitary officers and the CDC. But of course, like any other market of its size, there would be, uh, if you want, marginal activities and illegal activities happening within it. You know, the, the term wet market fails to capture the complexity of this on the ground. At the market in Wuhan, where the new coronavirus most likely originated, a single meat shop sold live peacocks, rats, foxes, wolf cubs, turtles, snakes, wild pigs and more, according to a recent New York Times report. Teresa Telecki is Vice President for Wildlife for Humane Society International. China is one of the largest wildlife markets in the world. Not only is there consumption of wildlife that is taken from the wild in China, but also wildlife that's raised on farms in China. But also China is a place where a lot of wildlife ends up in the marketplace. Wildlife that's taken from all over the globe winds up in China being sold. Many types of animals are sold in the so-called wet markets in China, alongside of farm animals, for that matter. But animals like uh, squirrels and rats and foxes and civets, which are weasel-like animal, and porcupines. There's another animal called a raccoon dog. And in China, it is believed that eating an animal that has just recently been killed 
is more nutritious. And so that's why you find these animals on sale alive. And then they're slaughtered right there in the market, right in front of the customers. And then the customers bring them home. Why is there such a market for these kinds of animals? Well, that's a really interesting question. And for the answer, we have to go back to the wildlife law in China, which actually was changed about a decade ago. And in that change, the government decided it was actually going to promote wildlife farming. So yes, people, of course, raise normal farm animals in China, but this opened up a whole new avenue for entrepreneurs to go into and get rich quick. And it was actually marketed in that way. And so this has really caused the proliferation of of these wildlife farms, which are very, very poorly regulated in China. A range of wildlife is traded in China and for a range of reasons. Aaron White is a China specialist with the Environmental Investigation Agency in London. Now, for some of these reasons are similar to why wildlife might be bought and sold in other parts of the world, such as for consumption as meat. But there are some specific areas of consumption that are particular to China, particularly traditional Chinese medicine. Of course, this is used uh, elsewhere in the world as well, but predominantly in China, we see a pattern of consumption of wildlife for their properties they're believed to to, to hold by adherence. For example, leopards and tigers are valued for their, their bones, which are used in tonic wines or certain pills. And that kind of consumption is a huge problem for these kind of species that are seriously threatened by poaching and trade trafficking in their in their body parts. There are, of course, other other types of consumption in China, such as you know, if it's as pets. This is something we see around a lot of the world as well. I think a lot of the focus in recent weeks has been on the consumption of wildlife as food, as that is uh, suspected by some to be the, the source of the current COVID-19 outbreak. Are some of these animals raised specifically for consumption, whether it's to eat or to use in medicines? Some of them are, yes. There's a significant industry in China of wildlife farming. Now, that might be for consumption as food, as is in the case for for several species. One of the species that the Environmental Investigation Agency focus on is tigers. And there is actually a significant industry in China called tiger farming. This is tigers that are bred for commercial purposes. They don't have any conservation value. They could never be released into the wild. And this farming of tigers is actually a, a real threat to the wild population's As we've seen, these numbers of tigers in farms in China increase to the point of over 6,000 now. And there's a kind of grey legal area around whether the parts and the body parts and the products of these tigers are allowed to be bought and sold. It's kind of perpetuated the demand for all tiger parts and it's sent out this ambiguous message that this might be acceptable to consume and and really it's been a huge problem in tackling the demand for tiger and other big cats that is leading to their disappearance across much of their range. What about the farming of smaller wild animals? Yeah, absolutely. There is farming of species such as crocodiles, a giant salamander, which is an amphibian, the world's largest amphibian that is raised for meat uh, of species such as civets. These are species in areas that 
we don't actually focus on at the Environmental Investigation Agency, but it's something that we see at the same kind of places sometimes where you might see more endangered wildlife offered for sale. Obviously, not all of this trade is illegal and opinions around what are the impacts on that species is is quite dependent on the context of of that species, whether they are threatened by trade globally. So for species like tigers, like pangolins and rhinos, we believe that the farming of these species is a huge problem. Is much animal trading occurring across China's borders or does most of the trade occur within China? At the Environmental Investigation Agency, we see a huge amount of trade going across the border into China. We come across this during our undercover investigations and our research on on social media sites like Facebook and WeChat. A lot of this is coming from Southeast Asia. There are some porous borders with Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, where we see huge amounts of wildlife really getting into the country. One of the problems in this area is the phenomenon we call wildlife trade tourism, whereby there are markets just across the border in places like Laos and Myanmar, which are essentially lawless playgrounds for wildlife traders. And Chinese tourists can come over the border in these areas, can purchase any wildlife. We've seen pangolin offered for sale at restaurants in Laos. Many NGOs and academics have documented tigers and all sorts of wildlife offered in trade points in Myanmar. And this is a huge problem in that when there's no law enforcement here whatsoever, really anything goes. China is a major destination for smuggled wildlife from around Asia and really even around the world, including Africa. Wildlife is smuggled all the way from Africa to China to meet the demand in China, which is quite high for these types of animals. And it's a big problem even in the farming industry. We were talking earlier about how the government of China has encouraged wildlife farming, but unfortunately they have very poor control over what happens on these farms. And we know that the farms have often laundered wild-caught animals and claimed that they were captive bred at these facilities. So, you know, that's a big problem as well. This is Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. Following the outbreak of a new flu-like virus, now known as COVID-19, we're looking at its origins in China, wet markets and the farming of wild animals. The nation's chief medical officer is warning that the fatal MERS virus, already sweeping through the Middle East and Europe, will be in Australia soon. A three-year-old Canadian girl has been admitted to hospital in Victoria with a suspected case of severe acute respiratory syndrome. Australian scientists say they've developed a test for SARS, a disease which has killed more than 60 people worldwide and infected 1,700 others. This is the deadliest outbreak of Ebola on record. The latest figures from the World Health Organization show more than 1,200 people have been infected in Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. COVID-19 is, of course, not the first new virus to emerge in China. And China's not the only place where new viruses have appeared. Yes, so even just in the last 20 years or so, we've seen a number of outbreaks of coronaviruses. I think people would be most familiar with SARS, the 
severe acute respiratory syndrome, which broke out in 2003 also in China, which also originated in one of these wet markets. And eventually there were 8,000 cases and 800 people dead from that one. And people may also be familiar with the so-called MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which broke out in Saudi Arabia in 2012 and ended up infecting 2,000, around 2,500 people and 787 deaths were caused by that. Interestingly, the coronaviruses is actually a very large family of viruses that people didn't even identify until the 1960s. But ever since then, we've been seeing more and more cases like this. Can you tell me anything about coronaviruses? What are they and what makes them a family of viruses? Well, coronaviruses are a type of virus that is mainly an RNA. And I think everybody knows what DNA is, the building blocks of life, right? RNA is a single strand of DNA-like material, which lives in a, in a membrane. And it's not an animal or a plant. It's its own type of category. And basically, these viruses are, are transmitted from one animal to another animal and then eventually to a human. All of these types of viruses that are transmitted from animals to humans are called zoonoses, and there have been a number of these aside from the coronaviruses. I, I think Ebola is an example, but also HIV is thought to have originated in the consumption of chimps in Africa. So by no means is this uh, zoonotic infection only limited to China. This happens globally and could happen, technically could happen anywhere and does happen in many places around the world. Zoonotic diseases, meaning diseases that spread from animals to humans, the term comes from zone in Greek for animal and nosos for disease in Greek, include influenza, rabies, plague, Ebola, uh, a range of, of diseases. Now, some of these diseases are well established, to call them old diseases, like plague, which has its natural reservoirs. And we are, after years and years of research, we are pretty confident we understand uh, the disease ecology of plague and its reservoirs, for example, in prairie dogs in the USA or in marmots in the Tibetan Plateau or in Mongolia. And then we have emerging infectious diseases, such as the new coronavirus. And these are much more tricky because they're diseases we have not usually observed, you know, because they were under a radar. And these are the most worrying ones. First, because, you know, they are unknowns to a great extent until there is a human epidemic usually and we observe them. And then because usually we would not have any knowledge of their incubation period or any epidemiological data on them, and also because there is the, the danger of human populations having no immunity to them. Diseases can be transmitted between animals and humans in several ways, not necessarily by eating them. I mean, the, the spread of viruses from animals to humans is really depends on the, I guess, the opportunity for contact, um, usually direct contact between both. And the ideal environment there are wet markets, which we have in this part of the world in many countries. But it can also happen in the house or on a farm. So there are a number of ways where that uh, could happen. And it's then either via aerosol, so uh, the animals excreting the viruses, 
through their respiratory tract, or it can also be via the feces and then contact of the humans with any viruses that are in, in, in the environment. So there, there are a couple of mechanisms how that can actually happen. And it's not just about wild animals, it can also be from domestic animals, even from our pets. I mean, I think the one that comes to mind is what was called the swine flu epidemic a couple of years ago, I think, was it 2009? And that was from pigs, you know. The other ones are the avian influenza outbreaks that we've had. Uh, they weren't pandemics, luckily, but uh, um, so H5N1, which actually caused quite a bit of some mortality. We had H7N9, again, from, from poultry to humans. So it's not an uncommon event. In fact, you could, you could argue, I mean, we probably have these transfers of pathogens and viruses occurring on a fairly regular basis, but most of the time, luckily, they do not cause disease in humans. The most dangerous source of any future pandemic, as we all know, is chicken, right, for flu. And we don't see any call for banning chicken in the West or anywhere in the world. So... You know, this is, I think, the best example of why we should be very careful our calls to ban wet markets, which is such a broad category to begin with. You know, we are, first of all, being inconsistent with our own standards since chicken and pigs carry flu and are the likely source of any future new strain or emergent strain of flu. You know, if we were to apply the same standards that we apply when we call for a ban on those practices in China to our own food market, we would have to ban chicken and, and pork. But we are not doing that. And we're not doing that because the whole call for banning wet markets is underlined by a sinophobic and xenophobic feeling in the West, I'm afraid. I think that's one of the most worrying aspects of this outbreak, generally speaking, the way in which it has led to this flare-up of sinophobia across the globe. I mean, of course, obviously, the problem of xenophobia existed, but, you know, it's uh, something that I have studied, the way in which epidemics are kind of fueled for people expressing xenophobic feelings. If you take the example of Australia, for example, in the early 20th century, when plague, bubonic plague, struck Sydney and, and other cities, you know, if you go back to the press at the time, it is quite horrifying because you will see cartoons of rats with Chinese faces. So it's this kind of forging an image of China as these breeding grounds of epidemics which are dangerous to the world and portraying the Chinese as viruses, which we see today in the West, which has led to this campaign online on Twitter, etc. I am not a virus, hashtag. To portray eating animals, which look strange to us as kind of an aberration, you know, this is part of a, a wider xenophobic pattern to the extent that sometimes it's quite astonishing to see, in, even in the most serious Western media, people saying wet markets sell exotic animals like frogs. And I assume the same people when they go to France, they try their frog legs. But uh, when a frog is in China, it becomes an exotic food source. When it's in France, it's uh, haute cuisine. So I think this is a clear kind of indication of xenophobia. And as well as the French eating frogs' legs and snails, we Australians eat our national symbols, kangaroo and emu, while the Scots eat haggis, sheep's heart, lungs and liver, encased in its stomach. 
China has banned the consumption of wild animals as it intensifies efforts to control the coronavirus outbreak. The Chinese government has announced what it's described as a comprehensive ban on the trade and consumption of wild animals. A new regulation was passed abolishing what state-run television described as the bad habit of overconsumption of wildlife. Scientists have warned that the transportation, butchering and eating of wild species can pose risks for human beings. The coronavirus may have passed from a bat, possibly to a pangolin, and then into human beings. Two weeks ago, Chinese authorities passed a new law banning the selling and consumption of wild animals, although not their use in Chinese medicine. How effective might the ban be? It will be very difficult to completely eradicate wild animal trade and consumption, especially given the connection with traditional Chinese culture and people's mindset. As long as there is a demand for wild meat, it is very likely that the trade will bounce back later after the epidemic is over. There will always be people you know, who decide that eating wild meat is more appealing. I think the other reason that it's difficult to ban any wild animal trade and consumption is that this is a gray market. And some wild meat traders only sell to acquaintance customers and they are also hiding wild animals in the back of their store or in other vehicles will be very difficult to regulate. I want to add that in Chinese social media nowadays, because of the coronavirus outbreak, eating wild animal is becoming a new taboo. You know, people who post online about wild meat got a lot of you know comments from social media users and they got discriminated so this outbreak will definitely change some people's mind and significantly reduce the consumption of wild meat while it's right to look at how the new virus was transmitted to people dirk pfeiffer says it's too easy to blame china wherever you are the higher the density of humans or of animals, the higher the risk of spread of infectious diseases, including viruses. And if you have that high density of animals, okay, of pigs, chickens, um, or cattle, and you keep them under suboptimal hygienic conditions, it's quite easy for pathogens, including viruses, to spread. And that's what we have over there. It's too easy to blame China. It's an impact of economic development. They've had this enormously rapid economic development over there where you have middle class consumers, they've got the money to buy more meat. And then there are people who try to satisfy that demand and see the opportunity without having a secondary school education or university education. So they don't really know much about animal husbandry, but they see the opportunity to make money. And that has happened. Now, why did that not happen in the Western world? I mean, I'd say one point is it took us a lot longer to go through that phase of economic development. So our public health infrastructure and governance, I mean, the risk governance in relation to food safety has kept up with it because we had so much more time. Over there, it was about developing infrastructure and maybe not worrying enough about the ways how food is being produced. And in addition to that, you've got that enormous urbanization. So, no, I mean, it's a very complicated setup. 
I don't think that generally speaking in global health today, we can reasonably expect anyone to prevent a spillover of an emerging pathogen. The emergence of new infectious diseases is generally considered to be inevitable. So the whole point is to be prepared for it rather than you know, constantly try to prevent it. You cannot really prevent something you cannot know, but you can be prepared for it. So it's more a question of China having a robust system of preparedness against the emergence of new pathogens rather than trying to prevent them. That's what we expect, generally speaking, in global health. So we shouldn't expect differently from China. Dr Christos Linteris from St Andrews University in Scotland. The other guests were Teresa Telecki from Humane Society International, Professor Dirk Pfeiffer from City University in Hong Kong, Aaron White from the Environmental Investigation Agency in London, and Dr Zhengzhong Su from the University of Waterloo in Ontario. Simon Branthwaite is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.